This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Warning, the following program may be dangerous to your health. Please consult a physician before listening. Nancy Boy. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. We've got some more ACC transfer news here on a Thursday drive. In the Commonwealth, Tech Guard and Walker Town's finest, Jalen Cohn has entered the portal. He announced that on his social media. Who's forward Casey Morsell joins him. And here in the state of North Carolina, Jamin Brakefield announced last night that he's leaving Duke. And for as much attention the Tar Heel defections got earlier this week, I think the Blue Devils' current roster situation is in a similar place. Now, with that being said, after pouring through all the analytics, the numbers, the recruiting classes, I have a little bit more faith, right now at least, that the Blue Devils are going to field a stronger team in 2022 than I do the Tar Heels. But there is a lot of work to be done, both in Chapel Hill and in Durham. These two teams are kindred spirits. It always seemed to be. You pull up those graphics, surely enough, when the teams play each other, you'll have the last 100 meetings, 50 wins for the Tar Heels, 50 wins for the Blue Devils, and they're only going to be separated by one or two points or something crazy like that. It always seems like these two teams are in similar places and doing similar things. They're always going to be linked to each other. Both have a lot of work to do and are maneuvering through unprecedented, unchartered waters here with defections in their program. Think about it this way. They both have lost players to the draft and to the portal. I feel the same way about Brakefield leaving Duke that I do Walker Kessler leaving North Carolina. Both players have demonstrated a lot of promise. I think about Kessler against Florida State, 20 points, leading that comeback for the Tar Heels. He did a lot of good things, really tall. It's hard to find seven-foot-one kids anymore who have the skill set Walker does. And in Brakefield's case, plays great defense. You're talking about a 6'8", 6'9", kid who could do a lot of different things, has a really deep tool bag, and if it's not for him, Duke doesn't beat Virginia at Cameron in what I believe to be Duke's best win this year. So these losses hurt in terms of how much promise Brakefield and Kessler had. It hurts that way. And these are not guys I think Duke Carolina loses in a normal year. Duke lost Jalen Johnson in February in the middle of the season. There was turmoil in Durham. I said back then, and I still feel like, Jalen treated Duke like they were an AAU team. North Carolina... Loses Kessler, you got parents spouting off Caleb Love's dad, Armando Baycott's dad, and they're saying negative things about the program. Dayron Sharp, he jumps, he's going pro. And I bet you in due time, we're going to learn that Matthew Hurt is also putting his name in the draft too. So there's a lot of moving parts in both Chapel Hill and also in Durham. They're both dealing with similar turnover. They're kindred spirits in that way. 
Here's the difference between Duke and North Carolina. Looking forward, though, Duke has a top-notch freshman coming in this next year. In fact, I'd say they have two top-notch freshmen. When I look at North Carolina's class, I don't see a top-50 player. It's not to knock them completely, but they, as of right now, do not have a five-star recruit. It doesn't look like it's going to change when you look at the recruiting rankings. Many of them are committed. I don't see many five-star kids who, unless you're talking about reclassifications, that are looking at North Carolina deciding they're going to play for the Tar Heels this next season. When I look at Duke, I see two kids ranked in the top 10. Duke, the previous two classes, did not have a top 10 player according to the 24-7 rankings. They've got two, and Paolo Banchero, and also the number 7 player, that being A.J. Griffin. Who was that first player you mentioned? Paolo Banchero. That sounds absolutely delicious. He is the number three player in America currently. When I look further in the recruiting classes, Duke, they didn't make the NCAA tournament this past year. A big part of that, they didn't have a top five player in last year's class. A top five player in their class. That hasn't happened the last couple of years too. The last time that happened for Duke, the last time they missed on a class without a top five player in it, you have to go back to 2012, where it looked a lot like this Tar Heel class does. You're just looking to add on some things the year after you had a really big signing class. I think, if memory serves correct, that was Suleiman and Emil Jefferson. Now, you might be thinking, the Tar Heels... They put a lot of eggs in the Cole Anthony basket. This past year, you brought in all these freshmen as well, and it didn't really pan out. You didn't really meet expectations. And Duke, they haven't been to the Final Four since they won the title in 2015. Why am I going to believe these two freshmen, Banchero, which Robert says sounds really delicious, and Griffin, they're going to change things? I think there's a misperception when people talk about freshmen in college basketball. You need NBA-level talent in order to win the national title. We know that. Gonzaga has it. I think they're going to win the title this year. Virginia had it with DeAndre Hunter, Kyle Guy, and Ty Jerome, and so on and so forth. You need NBA talent to be able to win. Most of that NBA-caliber talent nowadays, they're in the freshman class. What I've always had issue with with the one-and-done era, specifically with Duke and Kentucky, is that they were relying on the roster turning over each year, each team having a different personality, playing with a different style, and that being the identity of your team. In other words, the infrastructure of your team, they are freshmen. That's the infrastructure. What I think this year's taught us is that even in a year where freshmen have been hurt more than anybody else because they don't have familiarity in college basketball, they need reps, they didn't get the proper buildup in the summer into the preseason to get ready for the season as they normally would. If you're insulated with great leadership, a good infrastructure, experienced players that have been there, been in the program, and know what this team can do and know how they should play, I should probably say it better, you can have great success. Just look at the top teams in the field. 
Gonzaga. I think their best player is Jalen Suggs. Jalen's going to be a top three pick in the draft. The reason why he's been so successful and Gonzaga's been so successful, relying on a freshman, more successful than Duke and Kentucky and Michigan State and even North Carolina, is because surrounding Suggs, Drew Timmy and Corey Kispert, he's insulated in a perfect situation. Hunter Dickinson at Michigan, he's the leading scorer. He's a freshman. The other six or seven guys in the rotation are not, including a couple grad transfers. Chondi Brown's one of those. We'll talk about Michigan's matchup with Florida State in a bit. Florida State, I think, applies too. Scotty Barnes, he is the sixth man of the year in the ACC. He's the freshman of the year. Why did he succeed so much? It's not just because of his talent. It's because he stepped in and he didn't have to be the guy. They had Raekwon Gray and Raekwon Evans and uh, MJ Walker. Talent all over the place. A terrific coach, a terrific culture. All that matters. I think Duke's going to have that with Wendell Moore likely returning. And pretty much, aside from Griffin and Banchero, the rest of the starting five being players that are not freshmen. That's a lot different than North Carolina and Duke this past season. I have more faith that the Tar, the Blue Devils are going to have more talent when we get to next season than the Tar Heels will. I have fewer questions with Duke than I do Carolina. Shooting. It seems like Duke is going to have Jeremy Roach and DJ Stewart in the backcourt, maybe Joey Baker unless he decides to enter the portal. Playmaking, you have those two freshmen. Rebounding and rim protecting. There's that Mark Williams guy. The last time we saw him, he had an ACC rookie record in rebounding that was originally set by Ralph Sampson. 23-19 and 19 against Louisville his last time out. That's pretty darn good. Henry Coleman coming off the bench. You pretty much know what the two deep is going to be for the Blue Devils. As for North Carolina, if I ask those same questions, all right, who's your two top shooters? Well, we got Kerwin Walton. Is the answer to that question R.J. Davis? How about point guard? Do you know Caleb Love's going to stick around? If he is, is that a good thing? I'd venture to say not. Most inefficient player that we've seen in college basketball, high-level college basketball since 1993, 300-plus shots, less than 32% from the field and less than 27% from three. I don't know if that's a good thing to keep around. Either going to be Caleb Love or Anthony Harris in that spot. There's some confusion there. In the post, you lose Kessler, you lose Sharp. Do you know Baycott's coming back? How about Garrison Brooks? I think I caught Robert there. He didn't notice. How about it? That's a big question. Damn it. That's the big question with North Carolina. What's that leadership structure going to look like? Who's going to fill a number of these spots? Who's their best playmaker? That's probably the best question. Who's the best Tar Heel playmaker at this moment? I think Duke is better set up for success in 2022 than Carolina is. Maybe we can wait to talk about NC State because they played a night in the NIT in the quarterfinals. Their season's not finished. And with Wake Forest, their roster so much in flux with so many people transferring out. Uh, it's too soon to say what this Wake Forest team could be. And they have to prove they could be a winning program before we put them on the same 
stages as these other teams that make up the ACC Big Four. Duke, in a really good spot to have a really talented team coming back. North Carolina, not so much. Staying in college hoops, as I mentioned, the marquee game this week in Florida State, Michigan. Out of the eight games we have in the Sweet 16, I think this is the only matchup of teams talented enough to win it all. And even though Michigan's the higher seed, I expect Leonard's guys to win on Sunday and likely get to the Final Four, too. Let's call it what it is. Isaiah Livers, it would be surprising if he plays Sunday. Dealing with the stress fracture in his foot? Eh. Some sports orthopedists that I know have told me that it's likely he's going to miss the rest of the tournament. Leonard's convinced, and this is how you have to talk as a coach, that he's going to have a miraculous recovery and he's going to be on the floor Sunday for Michigan. If he's not, well, that's a big loss. He's the only Wolverine who played in the 2018 Final Four. That 2018 team coincidentally beat Florida State in the Elite Eight. That's as far as Leonard's ever gotten in the NCAA tournament. MJ Walker, he's the only Seminole that was in the rotation at that time. Chondi Brown, he has familiarity with the Seminoles. Faced them three times while at Wake Forest. Didn't face him last year because he was nursing an injury. So we only have three games here. Chondi versus the Knowles. He was an underclassman in all three of the games. One and two against Florida State. And when you look at the stat line, not bad. 15.3 points a game, 47% shooting. Led the Demon Deacons to a win. So he has some familiarity for how Leonard's teams want to play. It's why I like Florida State. They feel like they're due three straight Sweet 16s. Probably should be four because I think last year's team's better than this one. Patrick Williams, Devin Vassell being lottery picks. This is a classic FSU team in terms of its depth, how many bodies they play. you got Leonard Hamilton firing this group up, the new bloods and everything. Coach Ham's been at this stage before as a coach. Jawan Howard hasn't. And it's personal. I think we got a hint of how Leonard's going to motivate his group when he was talking to our friend Chris Spatola on Sirius XM Radio yesterday. It's the ACC versus the Big Ten. And everybody thinks the Big Ten's better than the ACC, even though there's more ACC teams in the Sweet 16 than there are Big Ten teams. Leonard talked about that a little bit. I just think that they're a very good basketball team, and they were the number one team And what people say. I don't know. We're going to see. They say they were the number one basketball conference in America. So, you know, they're the number one team and the number one basketball conference, and they're ranked in the top five. I mean, everybody in the country thinks that they – yeah, they they are fantastic, super wonderful, and outstanding. I remember Leonard last year was asked about the ACC being down, and he took such great offense to the question. He has a lot of pride in the ACC. I think Florida State wins, and if they do, they're going to go to the Final Four. There, I want to talk to Luke Hancock about this, who's going to join us at 5.30 from the ACC Network. He is a national champ, most outstanding player for the Louisville Cardinals in 2013. Matchups are so important when you look at the championship game, two days rest, the Elite Eight, two days rest, and the round of 32. Very quickly, you have to turn things around, and if it's a tough matchup and a team that plays a style you don't see much, that's a difficult thing. If Alabama's going to run into Florida State, they better hit a ton of threes. They're big on NBA analytics and a ton of three-point shots. This Florida State... uh 
three-point defense going to give, and their length going to give Alabama some problems, I think. When I look at UCLA, it's an 11 seed that had to play in the first four. It would be five games in 13 days next Tuesday if they somehow were to get past the number two seed, Alabama. And Florida State's the last team I want to play on the back end of five games in 13 days. If the Seminoles beat Michigan, which I think they're going to, I think the Seminoles are going to the Final Four. Your attention, please. Back to the drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Listen, I love March Madness as much as anybody. But one thing that's always bothered me about it is it's not really the best measurement for success in college basketball. We've been brainwashed to think this, comparing it next to, say, like professional sports in the NHL and NBA that had best-of-seven series and Major League Baseball to decide things. That's a more accurate measure, I think, of success, who the best teams are, than winning six games in a row in March, and in some cases doing so on two days rest. I, But with that being said, it's not just teams being defined, I think, where you might have poor measurements in college basketball. I think that goes next level when you broaden it for conferences. When you look at, say, the ACC having two teams in the Sweet 16 versus the Big Ten, which only has one, I don't think it's fair to say, because of that, the ACC is better than the Big Ten, like a lot of people are doing out here. I'm interested in what Hall of Fame sports writer Mike DeCourcy thinks of this. I said this after Tony Bennett won the national championship a couple years ago, that he's not a lot better or worse of a coach because the miracle play against Purdue in the Elite Eight happened his way when you consider the success he's had in the ACC, which is a really good league, and he's won with such consistency. So when you're trying to define success in college basketball, what do you think the best measurement is from a program standpoint and also for conferences? Well, I mean, I think that that making the tournament is important. I think it, it certainly, when you're getting there, it depends on what league you're in, too, and where you, what your program is. I mean, everybody's measure is different. Absolutely. Because everybody's, everybody's circumstance is different. My, my standard approach to that, when I talk about, like, when, when Mick Crone was at Cincinnati and he would get a lot of gripes about they, they only made one Sweet 16 or something like that, and my standard answer in those kinds of circumstances, they're not all playing the same course. I mean, let's be honest. North Carolina is not playing Augusta National or Pine Valley. I mean, the, 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 there are obstacles to, on every golf course. But the course that Carolina plays is not as challenging as the one that, say, Loyola of Chicago plays. It, it's a different deal, or even more to the point, because you're t- comparing different levels, uh, Wake Forest plays. Uh, Wake Forest, small private school, 3,500, 4,500 students. Um, it's, it's different than uh, Carolina, which is different than Kentucky, which is different than UCLA. Everybody's circumstance is different, and they all want to be defined by the same thing, and I, I think in more, more maybe, maybe it's just because I'm in it, I don't know, but I think more in college basketball than any other sport, coaches are viewed as disposable. 
this guy didn't get us to this place at this period of time. Get rid of him. Let's get somebody else in. Well, wait a second. He, he's gotten you places you've never been before. Yes, but he didn't get us there. And that's, you know, it's maddening to watch that happen because basically programs that continue to look at things that way are the ones that never get anywhere that they want to go. It, 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 it's, it happens time and again that programs that have successful coaches and think we can do better than this. I'll give, I'll give it as an example. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh, uh, and so I covered the Pitt Panthers for th- all of three seasons and part of a fourth and grew up with the program and have maintained really strong ties back there. So I know the program really well. And so when Ben Howland and Jamie Dixon came in, it kind of revolutionized the whole thing and made Big East championships possible by a formula that they developed I, you know, I, I, I knew what was happening. I knew that, you know, they're getting third, second and third tier players, and they're re- always really tough, and they always play together, and they, they defend hard, and so you're able to win in the league, but you get into the NCAA tournament, and you don't advance deep in the NCAA tournament without pros uh, on a regular basis. You can do it once or twice. Uh, you know, you get you play a little bit different style, like a Syracuse does, or like Loyola is doing now, and and you're very, and you have very good college players, and you can get through for a while. But ultimately, you're going to run into somebody's got pros, and they're going to beat you. Yeah. And that was, and and they rarely had those guys at Pitt. And so I would do radio appearances early 2000s, early 2010s, and they're not getting to the Final Four, and they're not getting to the Elite Eight, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm hearing Jamie Dixon's not good enough, and I'm like. You're forgetting where you were, who you are. But, you know, and that's, and now they're struggling to get to any kind of relevance in the, the ACC. So, and I'm not saying that Jeff won't ultimately get them there. I like him. I think he's bright. I just think the job is, it's a mountain. And there are other jobs, that he, the one he's had, VCU. It's not a mountain there. It's all set up to win in the Atlantic 10. And it was really all set up to win in the, in the uh, Colonial before that. And he did great at it. Uh, but it's but it's a harder job that he has now. Mike DeCourcy's on Twitter at TSN Mike for the Sporting News. So looking at this weekend's matchups, we got the Sweet 16 here. Gonzaga seen as the overwhelming favorite, and I think they've earned that. Is there a team you see with their style or personnel that can give Gonzaga problems? A team that's still remaining in the field? You know. I think that what would give Gonzaga problems is not playing well, honestly, at this point. I mean, uh, if they play Baylor in the title game, Baylor's offense with the three guards is so dynamic that they can hang. And that's the challenge with Gonzaga is that you can play well, which Oklahoma did. I mean, Oklahoma played pretty well on Monday. And all of a sudden, a bunch of threes drop, and they're down 14. It's like, wait a second. We're doing everything Coach said. We're doing. We're playing well. You know, we're blocking shots and we're making shots and we're not throwing the ball away. And now we're down 14. How'd that happen? That's a Gonzaga game in a nutshell. And Baylor, because their offense has evolved to the point that it has, with uh, with Flagler coming off the bench with the three starting guards, uh, they they can they can play in that game and be and have a chance. And the, the development, the recent development that they've gotten, uh, you know, on, on the perimeter from uh, kind of a, a stretch four type player from Matthew Meyer, um, he's been an enormous uh, lift for them over the last 
eight to ten games maybe. And, and so they can play with Gonzaga on offense. And their defense, maybe they can rediscover the character that they, of the defense that they had beginning of this season, especially all last season. They have not defended at that level for a very long time. And don't believe people, as much as the pandemic, the COVID-19 uh, pause might have affected them, their defense was already starting to leak when they went on pause, it may have been exacerbated by that. I won't argue that. I can't, you know, who knows. But it was already starting to decline when they went on pause. So maybe they rediscovered the team that was the number four defense in America last year and that was tearing it up at the beginning of this year. And then that gives them a chance, certainly, against the Zags. We haven't spoken since the Oscar noms were announced, I think, last week, if not the week before but we've talked about on this show a couple of the movies that have been nominated for Best Picture, Trial of the Chicago 7, One Night in Miami. Those are a few that come to mind there. Heck, Judas and the Black Messiah is another one that we've discussed. I am next up on the agenda for me. I haven't seen The Sound of Metal, which is available on Amazon. Uh, I haven't seen Mank, but what I hear about it, I love David Fincher. It's one of those movies that... Yeah, it's a movie about movie making, so of course it's going to get nominated for an Oscar. What nominated movie have you watched recently or one that you're dying to see? Well, did I tell you about Minati? No, you haven't, but I've heard good things. I, I, that, so I've seen that since we last talked, and I really enjoyed it. It, 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 was, a, it was a very... Uh, it was it was a delightful movie and and a, and a lot of surprises in it. I, I like I I didn't I went in knowing where it was set in Arkansas, so I did not know that a great deal of it was subtitled and 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 spoken in Korean. Which um, at at you know and I, I I think when we when we uh, punched it up that night, I like I said because I knew it was set in Arkansas, I didn't know that as much of it would be. Uh, in Korean, and at first, it's like, ooh, do we want to work that hard? You know, it, 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 but it, it, it's it's a, it's one of those. Uh, boy, you're you're doing this in March. Do we want to read subtitles tonight? But it's a beautiful <laughs> movie. It really is. And and the, uh, I, you know, when you, when you get into the movies and you start reading them, that you know, it it doesn't. It's not as much work as you convince yourself it is. Uh, and it was absolutely uh, a beautiful picture, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, I would definitely say that uh, that that would be worth watching. I have yet to see Nomadland. I will see them all before Oscar night. That's my that's my thing. I do that every year. I've done it now. You for, and me both. I think I think I'm. I've done it every year since '85. So I don't know how many years that is now. Thirty-five, thirty-six, something like that. Um, so I, I. But Nomadland is the one that I've been dying to see and want to see. And I think that's on Hulu. That's right. Which I, don't have, so I'm going to have to sign up for Hulu to get the chance to watch it. Francis McDormand, tremendous in that from what I hear. Minari, I'll keep an eye on it. I was told just last night, it's crazy how this happens because you did it with I Care A Lot too the last time that we spoke. Somebody just last night said, this is a movie that you're going to love. You're going to love Minari. You need to see it. So uh, it's crazy you say that, and I got a feeling I'll find time for it this weekend. Appreciate the time as always, Mike. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. I'm sure we'll chat before the Oscars. Absolutely, Josh. You take care. Got it. He's on Twitter at TSN. Mike, any other big NBA news to get to today? What do you think the biggest headline is? It seems Orlando shopping out Aaron Gordon to Denver and Vucevic going to the Bulls. They now have two All-Stars on the Bulls. That's kind of a big deal over there. Is that the biggest thing as far as you're concerned? 
Probably Vucevic to the Bulls, yeah, I would say is the biggest trade. Some t- teams got better. Uh, Norman Powell to the Blazers, that gives them another shooter. They had to give up uh, Gary Trent Jr. but and Rodney Hood, but give up some dookies, you know, to get a real shooter. Oh, yeah. Rodney Hood, that team was a lot of fun. Hood and Jabari Parker, that was the first year I was credentialed covering Duke. That was a fun, fun team to watch. Speaking of movies, I'm lamenting this here. Uh, it's fitting we were just talking about movies because Sawyer and I had to do book reports this past week. Book reports because we lost the Bachelor bet to Robert Walsh. So Robert gave out a movie for me and Sawyer to watch over the last week, separate movies, and we'll give you our reviews for that. In addition to that, Robert will give us the second movies that we need to watch over the next week to review because that's the punishment, two movies here. In addition to that, is the Armando Baycott sound in danger of being retired? Armando. All that's next on The Drive. Here comes the life of the party. The Drive. Corrupting the minds and the hearts of our children. With Josh Graham. Program for low expectations. On Sports Hub Triad. Woo! Sawyer Dillon's now in with us. He'll take us to Nerd Corner by the time it's all said and done. You had to watch a movie. I had to watch a movie because of the Bachelor bet we lost to Robert. He gets to select what movie we watch out of a form of shame. Maybe not shame, but just as a punishment. And he has another movie to deliver for us to watch the next week. We'll learn what that is momentarily and give our movie reports in just a bit. Sawyer, what movie did he have you watch? I had to watch The Society, a uh, 1989 like horror film. Okay, we'll get to that. I had to watch Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Like two completely different movies. Very different movies here. But when we got off the air, me and Robert got in a fight. We were, full disclosure, I'm just going to rip the the curtain wide open here and let you see what's happening behind the scenes here. Robert is hoping Armando Baycott transfers out of North Carolina. He really wants him to transfer because he wants that sound to go away. He's sick of it. We've been doing it for two full seasons, expecting him at first to be a one and done and at worst be a two-year player in Chapel Hill. Now it seems pretty obvious he's not going to go pro, so he's either going to transfer out or he's going to return to Chapel Hill for a third season. Am I misrepresenting you at all? No, not at all. And it's not that I don't like Armando Baycott. Because I love Armando. He is my favorite Tar Heel currently. A tremendous quote. We have that sound, which means we have a connection to him. Every time I hear that name, Robert... It's all I think about. Even if it's on television, they're talking about it, and I know they have no connection to the show, I always just imagine that sound is going to pop up somewhere. Bingo! I'll be sitting in the lobby here. Adam Gold will be going through his show all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, Armando Bacon. And this sound plays in my mind! I'll have dreams about Armando Bacon. I'm so tired of the sound. 
I'm so tired of the sound. He's a great player. I'm sure he's a great dude. But every time I hear that sound, I, I die a little inside. Let's go around the room to see where we stand on it. Let's actually go to the phones first where we have a really sad human highlighter I'm being told joining us here. Where do you stand on the Armando Baycott sound? Armando. Josh Graham, I'm having a tough time, buddy. The human highlighter has had very few highlights over the last couple of years. <laughs> and I certainly hope to hear that beautiful, beautiful music of Armando Baycott. But I'm coming to you, as I said, a beaten and a broken man. My Carolina Tar Heels, this has been a difficult year. The only highlight was sweeping that team eight miles down the road. But other than that, an early exit. And now, what is going on in Chapel Hill? Josh Graham, I'm asking you. I need, I know it's not the time, I know it's not the day, but I need some positivity from Mr. Josh Graham in regards to my Carolina Tar Heels. All right, human highlighter. You got to close things out the way you always close it out, though. Well, I'll do my best. Woo! Highlight! There we go. There's the human highlighter. Trying to cheer him up. He is the most consistent scorer from this past year, uh, which isn't saying a lot. He's easily the best player remaining, and you have to think, with Dayron and... Uh, uh, yeah. This is where positivity resides. Don't blame me, Robert. Blame the human highlighter. It's better than discussing what we were previously discussing because I think we were heading into a direction where I was going to have to hit that button a lot more times. So I'm cool with this. Armando. Armando. <laughs> uh, North Carolina's going to be fine. Here's some positivity for you, human highlighter. Sawyer, your best friend. Jalen Cohn just entered the transfer portal. Aren't you and got you and Jalen BFFs? Best friends. What would I do without Jalen? <laughs> it's a true story. I was at a Wake Virginia Tech game, not this past year, but the year before with Sawyer, and he said, Jalen's my best friend. We're so tight. We hang out all the time and we hug really intimately. I said, you're full of it, Sawyer. But then we went down to the locker room, and Jalen was standing there, and Sawyer was next to me as I walked past Jalen. And without us saying anything, Jalen turned his head and said, What's up, Sawyer? And dapped him up. So that means he's going to be a Tar Heel. And that's been Weekly Positivity. In all seriousness, Jalen would be a great fit in Chapel Hill. I put that up on social media and immediately Demon Deacon fans got after me. Oh, what about Wake Forest? You're not going to go from the third place team in the ACC where you're a sixth man coming off the bench 
and go to a place where you might potentially be a sixth man just for a team that's not as proven. Right? Wake Forest has great guards. You got David Williamson. You got Carter Witt. Jalen Cohn's a scorer. He's a shooter. Who's the best shooter and scorer that North Carolina has? Like, who is? It's Kerwin Walton is the best shooter, but playmaking scorer? Maybe R.J. Davis? But he's not reliable. Sawyer, Jalen Cohn, is he a starter on the Tar Heels if you put him on this year's team? This year's team? The team that just finished? Correct. Uh, I don't think so. I think you still probably play R.J. or Caleb or Kerwin over him. I think I would start Jalen over R.J. I would. And if Caleb transfers out, which if you read into his dad's tweets at all, probably seems like a likely thing here. Uh, Jalen Cohn in Chapel Hill. It, I would not rule that one out. How's that for positivity? This is kind of random, but is there any athlete's parents we want to hear from? Like, if you're the parents of an athlete, should you just shut up and sit in the bleachers? Like, because I feel like if any parent ever speaks up, we're always like, hey, shut up! The, shut up, LaVar! It's, it's great. Shut up! It, it's great. There's that faction of people that say shut up and dribble, but you can't say shut up and dribble to parents. So what shut is up it? and parent! So shut up and parent! Shut up and parent! I will not shut up and parent. <laughs> I am pro shut up and parent. I'm not pro <laughs> shut up and dribble, but I am shut up and parent. Are there any cool parents that we want to hear from? The uh, When Justin Robinson was great for Duke last year down the stretch, I would like to hear from the Admiral. <laughs> I'd like to hear from David Robinson. I could hear from Bill Walton on Luke Walton. Like when he was trashing the Lakers, I would have loved to hear from Bill Walton. It's great. So are we going to retire the Armando Baycott sound? If he goes to another team, then, I mean, I'm just not going to keep it on my button bar for something that you're going to have me play whenever they play a, a team that's relevant. So if he remains on the Tar Heels, I'll keep it on stay. the button bar. There we go. Let's get to the book reports because we're running short on time here. Who starts here? Should I do Gone with the Wind real quickly or should we go to Sawyer and the Society? Uh, you can either one. Whichever one of you feel strongly enough, I will say... Book reports, whoever goes first generally gets the best grade. My movie was a lot longer, so I'll go first. First off, I didn't need the five-minute video at the start of it, HBO Max. <laughs> it was on HBO Max. Okay, I'm glad you... you okay. You. I guess what's five minutes when the movie's four hours? <laughs> I get it. The movie's old. Okay. There's the controversy where you got to put things in its proper context. We know the movie's old. When I see it, I'm expecting to see things that are blatantly racist about the time. And here's the thing. I was actually, I, I was heartened to find that there wasn't as much blatant racism as I thought there would be in Gone with the Wind. Like, Sam is a lovable character. Mammy stole the entire damn show. Yeah. She was the first African-American to win an Oscar. Boom. Tremendous performance by Mammy. Roy Williams still quotes, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. To the point now, he doesn't even say the end of it. He just says, frankly, my dear, and we all should just know the end of it. It has me thinking, how many kids in the in the press conferences now, how many people in the press conference know that quote? Know, frankly, my dear, the end of the line. I just said it, and I bet Sawyer can't tell me what the line is. Frankly, my Frankly, dear. my dear. It's the end of the line. <laughs> yeah. There you go. 
unforgivably long, unforgivably long. It should be an hour and 45 minutes shorter. These older movies need to stop. Dog Day Afternoon, I watched it last night. Another movie that could have been 45 minutes shorter. These older movies, they just decided, well, we've spent this money on the film here. Let's, let's have the movie ridiculously long. Stop it. They're like, nobody's going to pay to come see this thing unless it's a, a real movie. It's got to be six hours long. Sawyer, give me something on the society. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to bring to the table? Yeah, Josh. Uh, well, I don't even know where to start. It kind of felt the whole movie that I was like lucid dreaming. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can't even give a plot like synopsis because it's just this guy and his family's in like a cult and they like. You don't know he's in a cult at first. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. late eighties tenant. How do I? How do I just? How do I describe these parties without uh, being they appropriate? Are Upper echelon parties where some things go on behind closed doors that they allude to the whole movie, oh, and you're no. expecting to go down one alley. Oh, no. Yeah. And they take you down a whole nother alien, we're from another planet alley. But they've set this thing up that there's these backdoor parties, and everybody's. Whose book report is this? Is, oh, I. I it's very. You have to walk very calmly Sawyer, around the I subject. I asked you to give me something about. Hey, this look, movie. he's going. He was doing way better than yeah. I could ever do, so I let him do it. It's, uh, it's like school again, where you're having him do all your work. No, listen. It's uh, they had, they have a. It's a long. There's a society, and there. <laughs> it is a movie. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it's uh, like a you wouldn't even film. think that Sawyer's seen the movie. No, okay. Um, I think if you even watched the movie, you still would not be allowed to talk about it. I. I kind of want Josh to watch it now just so he would have to come in and talk about it. You have to walk so cautiously around this. That's so Sawyer, that answer there, and that's going to close our book report. Great (laughs) work, Sawyer. It was a movie. (laughs) It's a book report on a movie that we're doing on the radio. Now, give me the movies that we need to watch for next week. Uh, you both are going to watch the same thing. Uh, the first movie was kind of like a troll movie. I didn't want you guys to really enjoy it. It was more like a ha-ha-ha Check oh. this out. Okay. But I'm glad you both kind of dug it. Maybe saw you're less so than you. But mm-hmm. you both this week are going to be checking out famous documentary, Har- Hands on a Hard Body. I've already seen this. You watched it after I told you about it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Sawyer, you will be watching Hands okay. on a Hard Body. And Josh, you will be watching Ben-Hur. What's Ben-Hur? Hang on one second. I will give you a synopsis. <laughs> Ben-Hur's runtime is... <laughs> oh bleep off! Yeah. You've already seen the movie. I was gonna give you inside. I lied. I didn't see it. it, it Two hundred twelve minutes. Josh Graham loves to talk sports. He also loves to accentuate his long lashes with mascara. You're a good-looking man. Thank you. Very pretty. You're on the drive with Josh Graham. Here's what we know about your fourth place Charlotte Hornets today. Not a lot of activity, but they did bring in Brad Wanamaker. What did they give back to Golden State, though? No players, no picks, cash considerations. We don't know if it's the Hornets receiving the cash or if it's Golden State receiving the cash, but it opens up two roster spots for Golden State to try and bring out one of these, bring in one of these buyout players that we're seeing. Give me the list of some of the buyout players that might be looking to join a contender, join, say, Miami or the Lakers, or join the, I don't know, how about the Golden State Warriors? LaMarcus Aldridge, just reported by Shams, 
he's going to be bought out. Is Andre Drummond another one of those guys? Uh, yeah, you've hit on the two guys that I know of as big buyout contenders. Okay. So that's essentially been what the trade deadline from a local perspective has been for Charlotte. I have three pressing questions to get to regarding the Hornets going down the stretch run of this season. Fourth in the Eastern Conference. Once again, want to throw that in. Do you want me to get to that first, Robert, before we catch up with uh, Luke Hancock from the ACC Network at the bottom of the hour? Or should we do the explanation here for the Carolina Disco Turkeys name, the new Wooden Bat League team name uh, that we have here in Winston-Salem? They're going to be bunking up with the Winston-Salem Dash, playing at Truist Stadium this year. Should we get to that, or should we do Charlotte Hornets basketball right now? Uh, let's go Disco Turkeys. Greg Sullivan, co-owner of the Disco Turkeys, explaining why they're the Disco Turkeys. There is has been a movement about, you know, bringing in things that have uh, maybe meme inspiration, uh, viral quality to them. And I won't lie and say that wasn't an aspect of what we were thinking, but we, we didn't want to do something that just was surface level. And I think with Disco Turkeys, it, it has more uh, of a of a fuller quality to it because um, you can play off of music as well. You're, it's not just it's not just a joke. <laughs> you can't say it's not a joke when they ask you what the team name is because that will make us think it's a joke. It's like. If you ask me, do I want ice cream, and I say multiple times, I don't want ice cream, I'm going to start thinking you might want ice cream. <laughs> it's not a joke. I'm not going to say... This Tony Stark-looking co-owner, Greg Sullivan. He looks like Tony Stark's off Wish. Looking like he's got a Ponzi scheme going on regarding Wooden Bat League team names. Listen here. We're going to make bank hand over fist with the disco turkeys. Listen, I'm pro-disco turkey. Pretty clear about that. Pro-disco turkey, I'm pro-fun. I want to eat one of those turkey legs when I get an opportunity, okay? I'm pro. I just don't think having that serious of an answer to that question as if you're talking about uh, obscure art or like you're at an art gallery trying to break down something. That seems so simple. Hey, well, it's so simple, but it's also so deep. If you turn your head and squint <laughs> at the disco turkey, it almost looks like a professional team. If you mascot. look, if you look at it sideways, you will see that the turkey actually is sending a deep political message <laughs> about the state of things. Where, where is that turkey pointing? <laughs> I'm not going to say that a large aspect of this wasn't because of the virality of memes. How big of an aspect was it? Because it seems like it was the only aspect. I can't get out of my head. Anytime I think of disco, I think of David Cutcliffe joining us one time and telling us back in the 70s, he used to dress the way that the disco turkey looks. Like with the white get up. Leisure suits. Uh-huh. I wore a leisure Chest suit to Chest open, hair. He wouldn't send me a picture. But he told me he used to get down during the disco era. And that's all I can picture anytime I hear 
of disco music or anything related to it. When you think disco music, what comes to mind first? Uh, Carolina. I just think about North Carolina and how they just... I meant seriously. Oh, okay. Not like... Because we can derive are you going, off music. Are with you this. going Gloria Gaynor? I will survive, or is it the Bee Gees? What are you thinking about? I think about John Travolta, like on that the cover of that little thing where he's got his finger pointed up, and you do the disco dance where it's like. All right, I'm going to search best disco songs. That's what I'm going to do here. What do you think is going to pop up? Uh, probably something Bee Gees related. Disco Inferno. There you go. First, first one that pops the up. The song here. or the wrestler? Because the song is good. <laughs> The wrestler is not good. Uh, I don't know Disco Inferno by the title. Uh, have you heard it? Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, that'd be great. I'm looking at some of the others here. You Should Be Dancing. Yeah, the Bee Gees. Night Fever. I Will Survive. There it is. Hold one second. Is YMCA by the Village People, that's a disco song? Yeah. Same thing for ABBA's Dancing Queen? Correct. I know Steve Forbes loves ABBA. He's told us this before. But that is a disco song? Is any popular song that comes out circa 75, 76, 77, 78 a disco song? Is that how this works? I want to make sure I'm clear on disco. Is it just popular music that came out at that time? I guess sad music wouldn't qualify, like ballads. I think it has to do with like the dancing portion of it. Like sure. What you're dancing to. The thing I was looking for is Saturday Night Fever. That's I got what you. I think of. What's Disco Inferno sound like? Uh, well, we're going in blind to this. I didn't get to listen to I, it yet. I'm so. sure there are a ton of F-bombs. Oh, yeah. Disco turkeys. But, like, when you hear this music, yeah. who is this for? Oh, it's for me. A lot of drugs made this music, man. I'm telling you. How is Staying Alive by the Bee Gees not in the top 10 of this list? Unbelievable. Hey now. I think it'll be a good time. I want to be there on opening night. Oh. Burn, baby. Yeah, we know. Luke Hancock going to join us in a bit. Can I get to the Charlotte Hornets now? Have yeah. we vastly explored the space here? You got to it. quote Christopher Walken, explore the space. All right, three pressing questions I have for the Charlotte Hornets. Number one, who do you prioritize out of Malik Monk and Devontae Graham? I think it's Malik, which is kind of crazy because when the season started, we're talking about a guy who constantly was a healthy scratch, who was dealing with uh, a drug-related suspension at the end of last year, seemed to be a bust after being taken in the lottery by the Hornets years ago out of Kentucky. I think... It's Malik because you know you're going to be building the team around LaMelo Ball. And Devontae Graham plays point guard. You know, you, you I think you want to have somebody to surround LaMelo, even if he's not a starter, more of a six-man role, provide some scoring as he provided last night. I think Malik, as crazy as it sounds, I'd probably prioritize. You might be thinking, Josh, why not just have them both? He's going to be a restricted free agent this year. Malik and Devontae is going to be a restricted free agent as well. If last offseason's tenders told us anything, the offer sheets we've seen, I don't think Charlotte's going to want to keep them both or be able to afford both players paying what would be required to keep them just to have them come off the bench. Luke Kennard getting $41 million from the Clippers. 
Markel Fultz, I think, getting over 50 mil. Second question. Are Bismack Biombo and Cody Zeller worth re-signing? That's what we're going to learn over the next month. I think we know enough about Zeller at 28 that he's not worth $15 million. If he likes Charlotte enough, and he seems like he loves the city, he might be willing to take less. Biombo, sure. Bismack, he's making around $3 million. It's not a big cap hit. He's a good alternating starter coming off the bench, but... Cody Zeller is going to have to take a significant pay cut for Charlotte to want to keep him around. Probably the starter moving forward isn't right now on the roster. It's why I like the Montrez Harrell rumors I saw leading up to the deadline. Last question. How far can Rozier and Gordon carry this team? With LaMelo out, I think it's revealed what we know who've been watching the Hornets all season long, that Terry is the heart of this team. LaMelo gets all the attention because he's the biggest star, but the heart of this team is Rozier. A lot of people owe Mitch Kupchak an apology based on the way they reacted to not re-signing Kemba and having the sign-and-trade, including Rozier. He's been awesome, as has Gordon Hayward. Both tremendous signings by Mitch Kupchak. How far can they carry them? Without LaMelo, who we acknowledge is the future of this team, can they get to the playoffs? Rozier and Gordon carrying the way without LaMelo. Right now, they're fourth in the Eastern Conference standings. It would be a wonderful story if they're able to do so. Those are the pressing questions I have for Charlotte Hornets basketball. 2013 Final Four Most Outstanding Player, Luke Hancock of the ACC Network. He will join us to preview the ACC's chances of landing multiple Final Four teams. I think that's a possibility. We'll tell you why next on The Drive. We're about two days out from the Sweet 16 beginning. So how about we chat with the 2013 Most Outstanding Player of the Final Four, Luke Hancock, who we know from the ACC Network now joining us here on Sports Hub Triad. And I bring up your credentials in March because I'm so interested in how you prepare for some of these matchups. And as it relates to Florida State and Syracuse, who are the only ACC teams remaining, it seems to me matchups are so important in the tournament, especially when you look at short prep uh, in the round of 32 and in the Elite Eight. Given how unique Florida State and Syracuse's styles are, how much do you like their chances of getting to the Final Four if either should get a Sweet 16 win? Yeah, I um, I think those are great questions, man. The ACC has had one heck of a year. Um, but I, I think those two teams, you hit the nail on the head in terms of their unique styles. Syracuse with that zone, I've played against it many times. I've really enjoyed covering it with the uh, ACC network. And it's so unique. I heard a quote recently, uh, Rick Pitino and Jim Beheim were kind of talking about their philosophies there. Uh, Coach P played a lot of zone when I was in school. And it was basically about why would I play a, a defense that you practice for every day? Because teams just don't practice for the zone near as much as they practice for man-to-man. So if I can get your second-best offense, why would I not try that? And it makes a lot of sense. And obviously Coach Beheim is famous for it. His zone is, is uh, something that um, he has down to a T and can make these small adjustments based on personnel 
to really stifle teams. And, and the one area you really worry about with Syracuse is on the boards. Can they rebound enough to make it happen? But late in the season, they get a two-point win over UNC with this, one of the biggest front courts in the country, one of the best offensive rebounding team in the country. You go play West Virginia, they're eight or ninth in offensive rebounding. You play good enough there. Um, and then now you're going to play Houston, who's the second-best offensive rebounding team in the country. So they've proven they can beat teams like this that are relentless rebounders. To me, it's about how hot can Buddy Beheim stay. I mean, right now he's the hottest player in the country. He's uh, walking the building range. He's pulling up from the logo. Uh, we call those guys DOC guys, dead on catch, which means they can't put the ball on the ground going anywhere towards the goal, and you don't give them any open look at all. And uh, Buddy has just transformed his game, especially late in this season, to not being just the shooter. He can put it on the deck. He can get fouled. He can get in the lane and make little floaters. Um, he's just done such a good job expanding his game. Joe Girard's become more of a facilitator. And uh, and then Marek Dolezal does all the little things for him. You kind of fill in the gaps around those. And I, I do think Syracuse can make it to a Final Four. Um, again, they have to stay hot. They have to continue to shoot the ball really well. But they control the pace of the game. They can knock down shots, and their defense is so unique. Yeah, they got a chance. And I actually picked Florida State to make the Final Four. Uh, so I know most people are, are basically lighting their brackets on fire right now. But I'll, I'll take Florida State as my pick. Um, I think they're deep. They're athletic. They can really wear you down on defense. And uh, on the offensive end, they were the best three-point shooting team in the ACC. So they can knock down shots from the perimeter. Uh, the first two rounds, they've done it just on the defensive end. They went 0 for 9 from 3 in the first matchup against UNC Greensboro, uh, but a much tougher test against Colorado, and they were just so good on the defensive end, they found a way to get it done. Another reason I think it's relevant to spell out your background as the most outstanding player in the Final Four for Louisville all those years ago is that, I don't think a lot of people know this, but you spent one year under Kevin Keats at Hargrave and I have to imagine that was a big part of the reason you went to Louisville when he became a part of Rick Pitino's staff. Uh, was Kevin Keats nearly as stylish then as he is now? <laughs> That's great. Uh, not in the Hargrave days, but when he got to Louisville, he certainly picked up his uh, his style. I remember the suits from back in the day, but it was you know, you're trying to catch Rick Pitino's all-white Armani suit or whatever he oh, wants, yeah. uh, look, looking like a, a mobster or something. Um, so Kevin Keats definitely had to step his game up. But I've gone to see him a couple times in Raleigh. Um, love Coach Keats. My experience at Hargrave just made me a better player and a better person. Um, gave me a ton of opportunities. And then to get to reunite with him at Louisville and, and win a national championship and, and have some serious success was just awesome. Um, he's a guy I love and trust. And um, I think he's, he's a winner that's going to do great things for the Wolfpack. Uh, but in terms of his style, man, you, it's tough to beat Coach Keith. He's got a lot of swagger, that guy. I'm sure you deal with this now that you've joined the media, being joined here by Luke Hancock of the ACC Network. But you never know what kind of questions you get from fans when you talk to people on the street and such. And one I got recently in the last few weeks, who, if you can have any coach, college or pro, who would you have to win one game? And I immediately thought, oh, I'm going Rick Pitino. And they were surprised by that answer. But I think what we've seen at Iona kind of crystallizes that a bit, where it doesn't really matter, even if he speaks the language that well, as he won overseas, uh, or what type of talent he has. He always finds a way to win. I think he's the best X's and O's coach I've ever seen. 
being on those teams that were pretty good uh, and won a national title, what do you think separates Patino from other coaches? Oof, man, I don't know how much time we got. We got a few hours here. <laughs> um, you know, having played for two Italian New Yorkers that I think are both fantastic coaches, Coach Larinaga at Miami and then Rick Patino, um, you, you see allowed different styles and you see what makes a coach great. And with Rick, you know, he was able to make adjustments on the fly and he was also able to see the big picture. Uh, in 2013, we became the number one team in the country and we immediately lost three straight games. And I remember after the first loss, when that, that bullseye was so big on our back, we took the first loss and coach grilled us. And it was a really rough couple of days of practice. You know, he, he, he hated that we missed that opportunity to stay number one in the country. Then we lose another one, and it gets worse, and it's another really rough week of practice and two-a-days, and we're worn out mentally and physically, and then we lose a third one. And it's the same kind of thing. Maybe not quite as bad, but it was still, you know, we're going to keep beating these guys down. Well, we win a few games in a row, and then we play Notre Dame in South Bend, and we lose in five overtime. And I remember Coach's speech after that game was very different. It was a very different feeling than the beatdowns we had had through those three losses. It was much more uplifting. It was much more, guys, we, we have all the pieces. We are going to make a run. It's where he started to tell us, we're going to cut down the nets only when we win a national championship. We're not going to do it when we win the Big East tournament, when we sent 10 or 11 teams to the tournament. We're not going to do it when we make the – the Sweet 16. We're not going to do it when we beat a team and go to the Elite Eight and the Final Four. We're going to do it when we win a national championship. And it, it, I just thought that was an incredible coaching move to get out of your own head or get out of your own way as much as he probably wanted to grill us for all those mistakes. And he hit a point in that season where it was like time to lift these guys up. And when he did that, we all fully bought in and we believed and we went on this incredible run and won 17, 18 games in a row to win the Big East tournament and then go win a national championship. And that, that's a big picture adjustment. I could tell you millions of stories about the in-game stuff where, you know, we're playing Wichita State in the Final Four. They have no turnovers with about 10 minutes to go in the game, and they finish with 11 because Coach was wearing them down. And then when he found the opportunity, we really started to pick it up and we started to trap a little bit more and we were more physical. And those little adjustments in the game just continually made us better. Um, I think he is one of the best X's and O's coaches to ever do it. And I'm with you. I would choose him uh, in a one game, no question. I get asked the question about who I would choose as a head coach. And, and that's there's two guys there, and I think they're both in the ACC. And there are a lot of people, especially around your way, that might – might grill me for this, but <laughs> Tony Bennett and Leonard Hamilton. Wow. Uh oh. Yeah, you're you're trying to get yeah, in no. fist fights now, Luke. I hear you. I hear you. And I I just I think what Tony Bennett's doing at Virginia is absolutely incredible. The success he's had with the talent that he's had. Don't get me wrong, he's had good players. He's had You're players. a shooter though. What shooter wants to play at Virginia? Joe Harris, Sam Hauser. Oh, that's Come true. On. That's true. That's true. Kyle Guy. Yeah, that Kyle Guy, Ty Jerome. I mean, he's had he's had guys that when you fit in that system and you develop over time, he he lets you loose a little bit on the offensive end more than people realize. I mean, obviously the national championship team had a ton of of great shooters and players and really smart basketball minds, but um, what they do on the defensive end, buying into that system is incredible. 
He's a winner. And then Leonard Hamilton as a person, I just you're not finding much better than that guy. Can't fight back on that. Also, my lady's a Virginia person. Went to Virginia, so I'm not going to push too much further back on that. Good arguments altogether. Luke Hancock on Twitter at LukeSkywalker11 from the ACC Network. Enjoy this weekend's action, and we'll get the rest of those X's and O's stories from, uh, about Patino the next time you visit with us. Appreciate the time. I'm in. Best time of the year. I hope you enjoy it as well. This is uh, it's great basketball. I love the Madden.